You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I trust we have found our place, John 21. Uh, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 14. Uh, John 21, verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, two others of his disciples were together. Simon uh, Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it, it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciple came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave, uh, gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning and pray, Father, that you be pleased to bless us as we seek to uh, study your word. We ask that, Father, you would teach us and guide us and lead us. Father, you would search us and know us. And not only would you give us understanding, but, Father, you would also, Father, encourage us. And maybe in, in some cases uh, we need rebuke. Of whatever we need, Lord, we ask. And we pray, oh, Father, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but, Father, we would leave as doers of the word. We pray, O oh Father, that you would shape and mold our hearts, that we would become more and more like Christ. And we say these things knowing in full recognition that you use your word, O oh Lord, uh, to shape and mold us. So, Father, we ask, open our hearts. We're in various places this morning. Open our hearts and instruct each of us, O oh Father. Give to each one of us that which we need this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. This morning, I, um, I don't think we're going to get past verse 1. I wanted to read all 14 verses uh, for sake of context, but I really don't see. I mean, we can get past verse 1, but I think by the time we do it, we're going to be spent this morning. Um, I, you know, I have found in my, own, in my own meditations on this passage that I, I don't get past verse 1. There is so much in verse 1. Um, you know, it's always a blessing to be studying God's Word. It's always a blessing to be in God's Word. And I'm thankful, you know, we have a number of studies going on right now. We've got this study in John, which is coming to an end. It's kind of sad. 
Um, but we have a study in Mark that's going on in the park tomorrow. We have a study. We started just a short study in 1 Corinthians on Wednesday nights. We're going to try to finish that up, not this week, but next week. And then we're going to be starting a study in Exodus on Wednesday night. So that's kind of a shameless plug for Wednesday night. Uh, but um, all of these studies, the point is we're, you know, and all the various devotions that we're doing, we're constantly in God's Word. And, you know, all of you are constantly in God's Word. And you know from experience that it's always a blessing to be studying God's Word. But sometimes, on some occasions, the Lord really blesses you, doesn't He? And aren't those cherished moments, you know, when the Lord really comes to you and really blesses you, really in almost a concrete way. And I have to say that on Friday morning and working through this text, it, you know, I, I, I had one of those experiences. It was just really a wonderful time where some of the points from John 1 just really blessed me. And my prayer is that that blessing will carry over to each one of us here this morning. Uh, you'll notice in the verse here that we're given a time frame to start now, the words after this, and I draw your attention to it because I think those are typical words we skip over. We just kind of, you know, we move past, you know, after this. And those of you who have been around for the study, when you read the words after this, you have a really good idea that what, is, what has come before. So you have a good idea of what has happened before. Even if you were only here last Sunday, uh, you have a good idea of what was there before. But as I look around the room, there are some perhaps who may not have had a chance to, to hear last week's message. Okay, what, what, it, what came before this? When John tells us after this, what came before this? In other words, what is the context in which these verses are written in? Well, if you look at verses 24 through 31, we have the text, we have the actual passage where the famous phrase, Doubting Thomas, comes from. Some of you were here last week and said, oh, now that's coming back to me, that Dallas, Doubting Thomas business that you were rambling on about last week. Yeah, the Doubting Thomas business. Um, you know, we've heard that phrase many, many times, haven't we? And perhaps we've used it. And sometimes we'll use it to describe some skepticism. Um, and fair enough. But sometimes that, as I said last week, sometimes that phrase is used to describe full-throttle atheism and agnosticism. And I wanted to be really careful to show that Thomas is not an agnostic. Uh, Thomas is not an atheist. And, and furthermore, even if we want to think about Thomas as a skeptic, it's really unfair because we're, strip, we're stripping his skepticism from his context. You know, I think uh, I, in last week we tried to capture that by reenacting what the disciples had been through. You know, we spent, I don't know, 10 minutes just going through. What were things like from Thursday night in that upper room uh, to Friday at the cross, uh, through Friday, through Saturday, through Sunday? It was absolutely agonizing. And I think what we have here in Thomas is a man whose hopes have been absolutely crushed. You know, he had, he, he, let's not forget, he has left everything to follow Jesus, and his heart has been invested in Jesus just as much as everyone else. And when tragedy occurs, we all react differently, don't we? It's a tendency. I mean, sometimes some of us, our inner constitution is such that when tragedy comes into our lives, we check out, and we kind of become maybe cynical and skeptical. It's just that's what we have a tendency to do. 
And you can almost hear that when, when you know, the disciples are saying, Thomas, he's really alive, Thomas. He's really alive. And you, you can almost hear, stop. He might not be saying this, but he's thinking, this is a painful subject. I don't want to go there. Stop. You're all seeing what you want to see. I realize your enthusiasm. I share your enthusiasm. But unless I touch his body, unless I touch those marks on his, on his, on his hands, unless I put my hand in his side, I'm checking out. I'm just not going to go there. And too often when we use the phrase Downing Thomas, we're divorcing it from all that, aren't we? Well, in this wonderful passage, verses 24 through really 29, we find Jesus bringing healing to Thomas, don't we? And how does he do it? He does it by appearing to Thomas. He does it by appearing to Thomas. And when he appears to Thomas, then we get, we get one of the greatest professions of faith in all of the New Testament. It's funny that he's not remembered by that. And it's been said over and over again that Thomas should be remembered by his confession, not his doubts. And we're not going to get there this morning, but as we go through chapter 21, I don't think we'll get that far this morning, but sometimes we have a tendency to see things that way, you know? We see the negative, you know, when we see something happen, and this is especially dangerous in a day of texting, you know, every time I text someone, I'm always worried that it's going to be misunderstood, and there's a good reason for that, because sometimes it gets misunderstood. Sometimes we can put ill construction on things, and we'll talk more about that later, but it's always good for us to put a positive construction on things when it's hanging in the balance, but more about that later. But what we see here now is that Thomas, Thomas has met the risen Lord. And he, he pronounces this great profession. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, in, times of in terms of time frame, we know that this is happening exactly one week after what we could call Resurrection Sunday, the, the Sunday that Jesus is, is raised from the grave, the Sunday that Mary discovers Jesus' tomb to be empty. It's one week after that. It's a Sunday and in verse 19, we have uh, the account, if you will, of Jesus appearing to the disciples on Resurrection Sunday, or we might say the first Easter Sunday, if you would want to use that language, the first Easter Sunday. So here are the time frames. So then when we come to John 21 and we see after this, what are we referring to? Well, we're referring to after this second appearance. Now, we're given another time frame in this verse that's a little more concealed. We've got to dig a little bit to get to it. But notice the disciples are no longer in Jerusalem, but they're by the Sea of Tiberias. Do you see that in verse 1? Chapter 21, verse 1, verse 1, the disciples are by the Sea of Tiberias. And some of us say, it's the Sea of Tiberias. You know, if it said Mar Lake Marlin, I'd know where you're talking about, you know. But the Sea of Tiberias, where's the Sea of Tiberias? And this can be confusing because sometimes the same place has multiple names. In Luke chapter 5, verse 1, the sea is called the Sea of Gennesaret. But more often than not, it's referred to as the Sea of Galilee. They say, ah, Sea of Galilee, got it. Okay, that's Stephanie's smile. Got it. I got it. Sea of Galilee. Well, uh, incidentally, this little tidbit here, the Sea of Tiberias, helps us uh, in many ways date the book of John. You know, we don't, I've never, I don't think in the whole course of this study, I've said one thing about the date of John. When was John written? In all probability, probably certainly, it was written between 70 AD and 100 AD. 
And one of the clues, one of what we call the internal evidences of that, is that the Sea of Galilee is called the Sea of Tiberias. The history books tell us that the sea wasn't commonly called the Sea of Tiberias until the latter parts of the first century. So uh, there we see this tidbit. But my point for this morning is they're by the Sea of Tiberias. Now, I read somewhere, and I don't remember where, but somewhere in the course of the study this week, I read that it's approximately 75 miles from Jerusalem, where they were at, to probably where they are here around the Sea of Galilee. 75 miles. Now, we probably all have a rough idea how far 75 miles are. You're on your way to the beach, and you see the destination. It says 500 miles. You know that's a long ways. But as it starts breaking down, and you start seeing 75 miles, we're going 70 miles an hour, 75 miles. We're going to be there in just a little over an hour if we don't stop, right? But have you thought about this in terms of being on foot? Because that Sunday where Jesus appears to Thomas... There are no Beamers and SUVs in the parking lot. Okay, what were the Beamers and the SUVs? They were these things called sandals. Imagine walking, and I Googled yesterday. I was thinking this through, how to make this more concrete. And I was thinking, what's 75 miles? I'm thinking Morgantown's probably about 75 miles away. So I Googled it, and it's 86 miles from New Cumberland to Morgantown. Now, I suppose where you're going to go in Morgantown, um, you know, you could add to that. But it's roughly 75 miles. And I'm thinking, okay, 75 miles. Mount Morris, I bet, is... If Morgantown is 86 miles, Mount Morris is probably spot on. Sure enough, 75.9 miles to Mount Morris. It's going, yeah, I know that trip really well. Working at Ruby Hospital, you do, don't you? 75 miles. Now, let's suppose that we, let's suppose, okay, it's Sunday. Um, we're all gathered. Jesus appears to us, and word has been given to us. Jesus has given word to us that he wants us to go to Galilee. He's going to meet us there. So we got that word. We're to go to Galilee. Okay, we're not going to be there the next day. You follow me? If we were going to walk from here to Mount Morris, how long do you suppose it would take us? Tammy and I were down in Davis, West Virginia here just a while back, and we had did a lot of hiking while we were down there. I think one day we estimated we walked between 7 and 10 miles in the woods, up and down and all around. Um, and it's, it's doable. It's reasonable. Tammy took it easy on me, and it was doable, and it was reasonable. Um, but, okay, 10 miles a day, if, if we, we were just kind of lollygagging through the woods, we weren't in a hurry to get anywhere. But if we wanted to really go, I suppose we could probably walk 20 miles a day, you think? <coughs> 20 miles a day? That sounds daunting. But even at that, it's going to take you about four days. And my whole point is, this is probably seven to ten days later. By the time they leave the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover feast that's their, that they're, um, that they're um, observing here, it's probably 10, probably 10 days later, I guess. Now, this will have more bearing in what comes next, but I, I want to develop it now and get it in our minds here. So we see after this, um, by the Sea of Tiberias, it's rough. Well, we're going to say it's 10 days later. Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples, and he revealed himself in this way. Now, some of you, because you've heard me make a lot of noise about this, might already realize something else about that verse that's really calling out to us. And what's interesting about Scripture is that Scripture is amazingly concise, isn't it? And let's think about the size of our books if it wasn't. Imagine if Scripture wasn't so concise, how big the volumes would become. Each book would be bigger. 
uh, all 66 books would become bigger. And what's often amazing is how much is said with so few words. The Holy Spirit inspiring the biblical author to write, he often says so much with so few words. And I think most of us could look at this verse and say, you know what, we could, we could, we could simplify this verse. We, could, we don't have to use the word revealed twice. I think all of us could easily conceive of write, rewriting this verse and doing away with one of the word revealed, one of the words revealed. But this is the point. It's being emphasized. After Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, he revealed himself in this way. And we see it again in verse 14, and that forms what we call an inclusio or a set of bookends, if you will. Why did I stop reading at verse 14? Because that's where this, that's where this particular uh, cohesive thought kind of ends. There's overlap in John. John's tricky to do this with. But you'll notice in verse 14, this was... Now, the third time that Jesus revealed was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. That is a really helpful comment. And it sets us up to really start to begin to understand what's going on here. Jesus is continually revealing himself to his disciples. Sometimes we say, well, it's not a new thought, Rick. We got that. We know the story. We we hear it every April. We know that story. Let's stop and think about it for a moment. And let's ask the question that three-year-olds are famous for. Why? Right? Why? They are famous for that, aren't they? You're about to have another three-year-old here. And sorry to bring that up. But um, three-year-olds are famous. They ask the why question. Why? 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 Well, one of the things, one of the reasons is Jesus' presence with the disciples is changing. Prior to the crucifixion, Jesus was physically with them for three years, wasn't he? And to get the gist of this, just turn back to chapter 20 and look at, we're going to look at verse 17. I think if someone, someone who has preached through John's gospel before, someone who's got a really good understanding of John's gospel may offer some criticism to my exposition of it uh, in regards to chapter 20. If they wanted to say, Rick, you'd hardly spend any time on verse 17, they would be correct. I did hardly spend any time on verse 17, but right now we're going to change that. Um, in verse 17. Now, for context, if you look at verse 15, there Mary Magdalene is weeping. And it's again, it's, to get into this text, we need to try to get into the emotions of this text. And where is Mary at? Jesus has been crucified. And here she is weeping profusely because she is the one who's made the discovery that now the body is missing. Imagine Mary for a moment. These folks have crucified Jesus, the one who has never done anything but bless everyone around him, and he's crucified. They've crucified him. Look at the trial he got. Look at all of this stuff. Look how wrong this is. Look how terrible this is. Then she gets to the tomb, and she finds the body missing. What are they going to do next? And she's, she's run back to Peter and John. She's brought Peter and John up. They've seen it to be just the way she said. And then, P, and then Mary returns, and she's just in the garden. You know, the, the tomb that Jesus was buried in was in a garden, and she's in the garden, and she's weeping. And a voice in verse 15 asks, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she thinks it's the gardener speaking to her. And look what she says. She says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. She's not thinking resurrection. She's thinking someone stole the body, isn't she? 
She's thinking what we would all be thinking. Well, look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him in Aramaic and said, Rabbani, which means teacher. And we made a lot of noise about that because what's significant about that is the shepherd is calling his sheep and his sheep know his voice. And if you're in Christ this morning, you know his voice too, don't you? And what does Mary do? Mary clings to Jesus. She's clinging to him. She's holding on to him. In that moment, think about what has evaporated. That heaviness of grief, that heaviness of hopelessness that's in grief. Think about what she's been going through. She's hopeless. She's despondent. She's depressed. All of that stuff is all lifted up, and it's replaced with this incredible joy while she's holding on to Jesus. She's holding on to him. Imagine how you would be holding on to, on to Jesus. And look at verse 17, because it, 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 it really makes you scratch your head. Look what Jesus says. He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Go to my God and your God. And, and a lot of ink has been spilled on this. This is why someone could rightfully criticize um, my work on John 20. I, I imagine if I was preaching at the seminary, there would probably be some students say, you didn't say nothing about uh, 17. You didn't bring up 17. yes. What's going on? Why is Jesus telling Mary not to cling to him? There's a lot of ink spilled on that, by the way. And I think the best answer is what Jesus is saying. Listen, Mary, listen, Mary, listen, Mary. My presence with you is not going to be like it's been. I'm still going to be present with you, Mary, but not in a way that I've been present with you. Go tell Tell the disciples that I'm ascending to my father and your father. Now, what's that about? Let's think again about Mary's experience. When Mary is clinging to Jesus in that moment in the garden, I presume she's alone in the garden with Jesus. But even if she isn't alone in the garden with Jesus, I am presuming that in that moment in time, there is nothing else in this whole wide world but her and Jesus, isn't there? nothing in this world, nothing that means anything to her in that moment but her and Jesus. But the problem is, in this particular arrangement, Jesus can only do that with one at a time. Now, let's think about this. Let's, let's think about this now. Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his departure, and he's been telling them that it is to your benefit. We spent a lot of weeks, didn't we, in chapter 14, 15, and 16. He was telling them, it's for your benefit that I go, because unless I go, the Holy Spirit's not going to come to you. The helper's not going to come to you, or the paraclete, whatever you want to call him. He is not going to come to you unless I go. But if he comes to you, he's going to teach you all these things. And the moment that we put our faith and trust in Christ, what happens to us? What happens to us is we're brought into union with Christ. We're brought into this faith union with Christ. And there is nobody, there is not one believer out there who is in this faith union with Christ who does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. And what does that mean? That means that in our darkest hour in this life, when we reach out to Jesus, and some of you, you've been there, when you reach out to Jesus in those dark hours, tell me, you tell me, isn't it like there's nothing else in the world but you and Jesus? 
Isn't that what the experience is like? When life is coming off the rails, it could be family members sick, it could be somebody passing away, it could be a myriad of things. We could go down the list. But when you're in that moment and you're in that time and you're clinging to Jesus, isn't it? Doesn't it, doesn't it seem like it's just you and him? That's made possible by his departure. In those dark hours, that's the way it's supposed to be. Just like you and him. No one else. Even though in that period of time, there could be hundreds of thousands of people doing the same thing. Does that make sense? Now, what a blessing is that? Now, attended to that is something we know really well. We go back to John 21, and you go back to verse 1, and there you, um, you know, uh, well, before we even do that, let me, let me throw another thought at you. When Mary is clinging to Jesus, she's not clinging to a spirit, is she? How do you cling to a spirit? Physically, the way she's physically clinging to Jesus in that text. I mean, if you're out walking around like this, they're going to want to lock you up somewhere, right? That's not what she's doing. She is physically holding on to a human body. The human body that belongs to Jesus. It's a glorified body, but it is nevertheless a human body. Jesus dwells in a human body. Jesus is a human being. He's a glorified human being, but he is a human being. Let us not forget that. Jesus is dwelling in the heavenly realm at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in possession of absolute authority with a human nature like ours. And we must add to that that he is also God, isn't he? He's not just a human being, but he's also God. Look what Thomas says. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and Jesus doesn't correct him. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And over and over again, we've seen Jesus make the claim to be God all through John's gospel, haven't we? Now let's think about Mary for a minute. Back in the garden. Mary is holding on to Jesus. She's clinging to Jesus. And as she is clinging to Jesus, she is clinging to God. And as she is clinging to God, there is no safer place in the cosmos for Mary to be. Is there? Can you think of a safer place for her to be? It makes no difference what her circumstances is. Mary has a lot of struggles left in her earthly pilgrimage. But as she is clinging to Jesus, Mary is never safer. She is never safer than when she's clinging to Jesus. And the same thing applies to us. Whether, we're, whether life is going really well or we're finding ourselves in a dungeon waiting execution, as we're clinging on to Jesus, we are never safer, are we? Everybody okay with that? Now, this uh, brings us to another point, a fourth point, and I'll leave you with that, is that Jesus is taking the initiative here. You know, you look at chapter 21, verse 1. Jesus reveals himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Verse 14, he was revealed to the disciples. Jesus is taking the initiative 
Now, what is, what is so marvelous about that is if we're in Christ Jesus this morning, we're only in Christ Jesus this morning because Jesus has taken the initiative. And that warms your heart. Let's think about it. If Jesus hadn't done this, would the disciples have any idea that he's alive? If he hadn't taken the initiative to come uh, that evening in verse 19, the first Sunday morning after the crucifixion. If he wouldn't have taken the initiative on the following Sunday. So Jesus comes to church the first Sunday. He comes to church the second Sunday. He reveals himself to the disciples the first Sunday. We figure there's 10, at least 10, probably some others. We've been over that. There's some, there's some disagreement about that. We've covered that. And we can look back at the earlier recordings. But in verse 24 and following, Jesus comes back and he reveals himself to Thomas. But he needs both cases. As Jesus reveals himself to the disciples in verse 19 and following, Jesus is taking the initiative. As he reveals himself to Thomas in verse 24 and 29, Jesus is taking the initiative. As Jesus reveals himself out by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is taking the initiative. And there are numerous, numerous post-resurrection appearances of Jesus where he's, uh, uh, Paul tells us that he once appears to more than 500 people. Again, Jesus has taken the initiative. In all of these cases, Jesus has taken the initiative. Now, what does that mean for us? What that means for us is if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, you're only doing that because once upon a time, Jesus took the initiative, and he personally, through the administration of others for sure, but he personally came and knocked on your door. That's amazing, isn't it? You know, the devotion that I did down at the park this morning, I, you know, I always, that, that PA is now so loud down there. And when I'm, I try to talk kind of quiet because I'm worried it's going to be like so loud. But one of the um, points that I was making is that, you know, um, it was from 1 John four nineteen, where John tells us we love because he first loved us. And I was just going through some basic things that kind of stall that love. We love him because he first loved us. Alexander McLaren, many years ago, said rightfully that no man loves God until he first understands that God loves him. And I went through a couple of things. You know, if Jesus is just a concept to us, and some of you have heard that, you know, I've said, is Jesus a concept to you or is he a real living presence in your life? Ask that question. You've heard me ask that question. And, I, I, you know, there's once upon a time some have said just a concept, but we're happy to say now that's not the case. He's a real live living presence in your life. So if we think of Jesus as just a concept, it's hard to love a concept, isn't it? A concept's just an abstract idea. It's hard to love that. It's hard to... It's hard to we might love the idea, but do we expect the idea to love us? I don't know what has any those kinds of expectations. If we do, there's maybe we've got some grounding it needs to tend to, uh, because it's not how it works. But one of the things that I brought up is indifference. A lot of people, their conception of God is that God is out there somewhere, far away and indifferent to what is going on in our lives. And if that's what we think, if that's how we view God, then it's going to be hard for us to have a deep conviction of his love for us. But what is the answer to that? What's the answer to God is just an abstract idea? Or God is an impersonal force? 
A lot of people believe that God is an impersonal force, but we, we don't, we don't, I don't think anybody thinks gravity loves them, do is anybody, maybe somebody does, I don't know, but it's not common, right? Impersonal forces aren't capable of loving. But what's the antidote to that? The antidote to that can be summarized with two words, the cross. If we have any doubt about whether God loves us or not, then let us look to the cross because what's going on at the cross? What's going on at the cross? It says here, dear sinner, I'll have nothing of you going to the cross. He takes the initiative. We're delighting in our sins. We're, we're delighting in our autonomy for him. We're delighting in all that stuff. Jesus takes the initiative. He goes to the cross. It's, so, it's just so out there. His, his closest disciples don't even understand what's going on. Jesus goes to the cross. What's he do at the cross? All of you step aside. I'll have nothing to do with you suffering in the cross for your sins. You step aside. I am going in your place. And I am going to suffer in your place. Now, when that message comes home to us, now we begin to understand, God loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus takes, in every single case, he takes the initiative. That's breathtaking, isn't it? I don't have any better than that, so we better quit. How's that sound? Does that sound good? Does that sound okay? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we try to proclaim these things, Father, as we've already said in, in this morning's service, that the English language is just, um, it has its limitations in praising you. It has its limitations in describing you. But, Father, there's more to it than that. Our own perceptions and our own minds have their limitations. But, oh, Father, we, we, we attempt this morning to go out as far as we can to try to see the grandeur of your love for us, the grandeur of the initiative you've taken. We go out to see, oh, Father, as far as we can, that there's no safer place for us than to be clinging to you. And, oh, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would reveal yourself. Reveal yourself, O oh Lord, to us afresh this morning. There may be some present here this morning who say, you know, this concept thing sounds familiar, or this indifference thing sounds familiar, or, or this personal force stuff sounds familiar. Lord, I pray that, Father, you'd take the initiative in their hearts and their lives to reveal yourself to them, that they'd see you. They'd see you in, upon the cross dying in their place, and they would see you raised not like we see one another, but with the heart's eye. And, Father, we pray that for those of us who have walked with you for many, many years, Father, you would manifest yourself in Jesus afresh to us this morning, that we would cling to you, and as we cling to you, we would recognize regardless of whether our world has fallen apart or our, our lives have come off the tracks or whatever it might be, that there is no safer place for us than to be clinging to you. You will provide everything for us in providing a salvation for us at such a cost. It is nothing for you to provide everything else. Well, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.